0: Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. I don't know about you, but when I find something good, I don't like to give it up. So if you like this episode, why not pop to the website, onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other great episodes, sign up to the mailing list, or go to your favourite podcast app and subscribe so you'll never miss another episode again. And don't forget to share it with your friends so they can join in with the fun too. On tonight's episode, we go deep and meaningful into the philosophy of product design. What is product design? How does it differ from other types of design? Can any designer give it a go? How does it interface with product management and, very importantly, who should it report into? We also take a moment to remember the alpha and omega of design tools, the one and only Flash, RIP. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is Udaya Kumar Padmanabhan. Udaya is an executive design leader, mentor, and speaker working at Designer in Bangalore. Udaya is someone with more LinkedIn recommendations than I can shake a stick at. He's been described as a visionary design guru who's both down-to-earth yet above the clouds. I'm hoping to meet him somewhere in the middle tonight and do my best to avoid altitude sickness. Hi, Udaya. How are you tonight?
1: Hey, Jason. I'm doing good. Hope all is well with you as well.
0: Absolutely fantastic. I've got my oxygen canisters on hand. (laughs) So... So first things first, you're working for Design It. Who would design it and what problem do they solve?
1: Okay, so we are a Danish firm celebrating, we'll be celebrating our 30th birthday this year. We started in Aarhus 30 years ago in a chocolate factory. <laughs> uh, Willy Wonka. Uh, sort of Willy Wonka, yes. <laughs> uh, highly regarded for, uh, you know, all kinds of design, industrial design, tangible design, and all of that stuff. But we are actually, in essence, uh, we are known for, you know, strategic design and service design, and basically solving design problems at scale for businesses, society uh, alike. Design It got acquired by Wipro uh, in 2015. So that was the point in time where all the big companies were shopping for design agencies, and Wipro, you know, ended up acquiring uh, Design It. But yeah, we still operate as Design It, and basically our label is Design It, uh, Wipro company. Yeah, that's what that's what we are. We are currently about 1,000 plus people across. 16 cities we did acquire a few companies cooper was acquired by us in 2016 most recently we acquired rational and we have you know an amalgamation of industrial designers service designers ux designers researchers uh, even designers architects cognitive scientists anthropologists a very eclectic mix of thousand people uh, of a organization mm-hmm. that's about 190,000 people strong wow. and yeah we are at the forefront of every little thing that we uh, pro my parent organization does
0: well, it sounds absolutely awesome and and really wide ranging as well. I'm sure you get to experience a wide array of different types of client and challenge, which sounds fantastic. Absolutely. But you're currently a global strategic design director there. So what does that mean specifically? How do you feel your days?
1: Okay. So we have a we have a stack. We have uh, uh, different roles and responsibilities, you know, stacked. So basically, it uh, begins uh, with a managing director, and then there are de- design directors, and then you have leads, and all of that. So Global strategic design director? Okay. I'm part of uh, the global team as well. My typical day at work comprises of many, many things. Though I'm a practicing designer. I also take care of design operations and design delivery. So I do get built on projects. I consult on projects. But at the same time, I also ensure everything that we promise the customer actually gets delivered. So there is a delivery engine that I need to take care of. And then Some total, I take care of all things desops, right? Be it hiring, uh, you know, the right people, enabling them to grow, enabling them to learn, get the right fitment, get the right designers on the right projects and all of that. So, yeah, global because we are a global firm. And I also get to collaborate with, if not all of the studios, most of the studios at some point in time. And we are also part of, since we are part of the leadership chain at the global level, I think that's a nomenclature that they've been using.
0: Excellent. But you're based yourself in Bangalore, which is a town that I know mainly as being kind of a tech hub. I've never really heard of it as like a design hub. Mm-hmm. So, is Bangalore a particular design hub, or are you like the the biggest player there? Like, how's the design community there?
1: Yeah, interesting question. Yes, you can consider Bangalore as one of the uh, primary design hubs back here in India. There are a few more cities, also. Uh, typically, like you said, anywhere you have a IT hub currently as we speak, design as a function also has got its seat. So there are quite a few cities apart from Bangalore, but the designs in in Bangalore is definitely good. So 20 years ago, we were known for IT in terms of, you know, helping uh, on the services model and stuff like that. But today, as we speak, we are considered as the Silicon Valley of the East, the Silicon Valley of India or Asia. And Hmm. basically, you know, people just call it out, you know, relative to a continent or a region and all of that. But I think, I think Bangalore is the hub of all the biggies, uh, be it a Google or be it a Facebook or be it a, a Mercedes-Benz or we are the, you know, extended arms of all critical aspects that happen on the home front for all of these giants. So we have moved beyond services. In fact, companies, right from semiconductors to electric vehicles, you name it, we are a hotbed. So we have transcended ourselves from just a services firm to actually building cool stuff here. The aftereffect of that is a lot of design functions and design activities also get localized. So in the last 10 years, there's been a significant thrust in the kind of design that evolves out of Bangalore. There are products actually built, being completely built out of Bangalore. I'm talking about tangible products. Then there are a lot of software products and services and platforms that actually get built out of Bangalore and you know is being served on a platter to the whole world. So it is thriving. There's a huge supply-demand issue, as with most of these thriving startup-slash-tech cities across the globe. I think there's an immense amount of demand for sure, but the supply is, could be better. And uh, that's something that most of the cities actually juggle with, be it uh, Tokyo, be it Berlin, or be it San Francisco. But yeah, back, back in India, it's definitely, uh, it could be better. But Bangalore does have a huge uh, design crowd. But how did
0: you get into design? Because your background is, from what I understand, is around computer science, maths, statistics. I think that was what you did at university. Right. That makes me think you should be like a data scientist or something. <laughs> but how did you get into design?
1: Yeah, I, I'll, I, I've I, told this in the past as well, so I'll I'll try to be very crisp and succinct, but at the same time, <laughs> as expansive as possible for uh, you know people who have never heard me or probably hearing me for the first time. I basically was you know, really good at computer science and maths and stats. Like I trained to be a quant, you know, 20 years, even before time actually made the quant as person of the year. So I keep joking that, you know, I had foresight that I did it 20 years ahead of time. I did not see myself as pursuing a career writing code, not because I hated it or anything. I was really good at it. I worked on a you know, bunch of real live projects during my final year, which was like very, very rare for my generation. I helped one of the largest or probably the largest insurance firms in india to automate their uh, you know gratuity uh, function uh, this was written in cobol by the way and trust me it still runs <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah but i never thought that probably i'll you know write code for the rest of my life for whatever reasons i mean maybe maybe it was a, a gut feel or maybe i was just building my excuses or what but but i thought <laughs> you know i do, i just don't want to do it and uh, yeah i got exposed to art at a very young age and i think art translated into design and then uh, yeah there was no looking back i think i think i got my first computer when i was uh, 13 13 and a half or 14 uh, you know green screen <laughs> <laughs> and definitely yes so i think i got i got hooked to desktop publishing you know and MS paint and all of that and uh, i'm happy <laughs> so yes so i didn't want to write code probably and uh, the only other option was okay you you know you do what you are good at And I got into the creative side of things and slowly climbed my way up. I I did everything that you could think of, right, from desktop publishing to multimedia to, you know, videos to ad films to print and new media. And,
0: yeah. I'm assuming there's some flash in there at some point as well.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) During my freelancing days and moonlighting days, I think I used to make 10x the money. Uh, my employer is to pay and uh, just it was all about flash intros. I mean, I I, I have juiced. I, I'm probably one of those guys who's juiced flash to the max. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. Uh, RIP flash. Yes. Fondly remembered. Yeah. So talking about design then. So recently you gave a talk about demystifying the difference between product management and product design. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, I don't want you to rehash the whole talk again. But it'll be interesting because that's obviously something that comes up Mm. a fair amount. And you don't have to go too far, for example, to see job specs out there that conflate the two. Obviously, you've also got the UX designer in there as well as like a third arm of that. Some people would say that UX designers are the same as product designers. Some some people will say that they're very different. Mm -hmm. Help me demystify this a little bit. So where do the boundaries sit as far as you're concerned?
1: Great. I think I think you, you you know there were two interesting questions in your question, so I'll take it uh, you know in sequence. I'm, I'm really bad at that. <laughs> no, no, no. I think I, I think it'll help people who are listening, you know, get a simplified uh, you know rendition of what it is as we speak. So let me deconstruct product design and UX design within the design land. There's this huge fight between I'm a product designer and I work for a product company, and you're just a UI UX designer and whatnot, right? So fundamentally, I think this whole label of product design evolved. Uh, you know, in the 40s and 50s when industrial design became a thing. People were building tangible things and they were, you know, they did industrial design. Probably they did mechanical engineering and industrial design and they started working with tangible stuff, right? I think as we move up evolved, technology evolved, a lot of those tangible offerings and solutions actually got digitized. A lot, many things. Simple, uh, you know, case in point, snail mail versus email. So back in the day when there was no email, we all know, right? Postcards and letters were printed, envelopes were <laughs> printed, and those were printed, you know, using probably a Gutenberg press or a Heidelberg machine, and it was designed, right? Somebody who was designed, same as with currency, right? Uh, while while we still deal with banknotes and coins and all of that stuff, you know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people transact with uh, air today, right? Digital cash. So I think the product designness, the construct of product design itself, seeped through the digital world, and then. Uh, The labels got stuck, right? I work for Adobe and I'm a product designer. You know, I'm part of the Creative Cloud team and I work extensively on Illustrator. Fair point, I mean, semantics. But but yeah, that's where the fight is. That's where the, you know, it it sometimes gets to bloodbath that, you know, you have to come from product company to fit into a product company. I have unbelievable uh, stories uh, that I can think of. Some of the best uh, designers not making it into another company because the hiring panel felt that this person comes from a different world and vice versa. So, So I think... The evolution of tangible to intangible, you know, segments of certain design is is at fault or probably is what catalyzed this disparity between uh, practitioners thinking that A is B and B is A. You know, having got that out of the way, I think product management and product design are integral parts of a larger superset, right? So people just get, you know, carried away by, you know, the product management guy has more ownership. Because uh, he or she is construed as the mini CEO of the product. And then designers get, as, as it is designers, we are very touchy feely uh, people. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think it is basically the push pull between being analytical and emotional. Uh, you know, management is always being very, very analytical, rigorous, evaluative and quantitative and, you know, 600, other things that we all know. Any MBA class would teach that. On the other side, we are, we are diametrically opposite to that spectrum. Right. We talk about intuitiveness. We talk about outside and we talk about being generative and, you know, outcome based versus output based and all that. A lot of these ambiguities are because, you know, these turf wars, for want of a better word, is because <laughs> each person is speaking the same thing from their lens. So even I was there, I was there on both valleys and, you know, I have fought on both sides. Also, age sobers you down and then you reflect back and basically you're talking the same thing. That is where I think product management as a function also is fusing so much. So you have some very premier niche universities or schools or organizations actually wanting to help people learn management plus design under the same construct. Early days though, but I think that will become a critical part of the academia world also. So one advantage I see there is people from the get-go during their formative academic years are at least trained. To basically appreciate the fact that both are part and parcel of the same box, whether it's white box or black box, and people could actually cut across both and you know figure out whether they want to do management or whether they want to do design. And the industry is peppered. I'm sure you also know it. The industry is peppered with a lot of you know stories where product management guys shifted to design and vice versa. And you know, I, I've been lucky to work on both sides, but I, yeah, I think I, I got back to design. Uh, because we are a full-blown, uh, you know, design agency, we also help customers with product management side of things, but we don't, you know, become product managers. But, but I think, I think the industry is at fault. But a lot of people that I know of are actually trying to, you know, ease out uh, these apprehension about I am big and you are big and all of that. <laughs> but I, I think probably it'll take a few more years where you know these become anecdotal and probably. The product management uh, professionals and the product design professionals of the you know later years would actually laugh at this. <laughs> so.
0: One interesting thing that I thought of while you were going through the challenges of people that didn't get hired, for example, based on being maybe from the wrong domain or from the wrong background in design. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's actually something that I've reflected on from a product management perspective, because there's this whole argument about whether you need to, for example, be a domain expert in the type of product or the industry that the type of product that you work on exists in. So, for example, do you need to be a, a fintech product manager to work in another fintech company or you know, do you just need to be a general product management expert? And that's that. You know, there are strong opinions on both sides of that argument, but it really sort of drifted into my mind when you were talking about, for example, do you need to be... A certain type of designer to be a product designer or do you think that there are certain design principles that given obviously the sufficient time for onboarding and and upskilling in the product that you're working on do do you think that any designer could effectively do that or is it a very specific set of skills
1: yeah great question again i think yeah i think i think this whole notion of yeah, I am a fintech company and I would rather hire a person with, you know, similar experiences is good. It's an idealistic situation. But in today's day and age, I think that actually has negative ramifications so much. So it, be, it has become an intense debate in the hiring circles, right? Mm-hmm. My theory after having spent like a quarter of, you know, quarter, quarter of a century is this. I think this is fundamentally a problem because of the similarity bias that we bring in as recruiters, as uh, people who hire these guys. Because we want to de-risk anything uh, from the get-go. If I have climbed the career ladder uh, doing certain things, and that becomes my template, that becomes my framework, and and this, you know, the candidate that signals that the most actually gets the job uh, more often than not. You know, uh, it's not that it's not about them coming from Google or Facebook or having you know built and sold companies or anything. At that point in time, it's a reflection of hardcore similarity bias at play right? I would rather hire somebody who's exactly like me. And that's that. And, in you know, organizations are just abstract constructs, right? It is the people that makes the firm. A larger organizations means, uh, you know, larger difficulties in exactly figuring out what was the, you know, thought process in hiring people. So, I keep telling people that, you know, research has told that, you know, have a common uh, standardized set of questions, that will remove similarity bias. A lot of research actually has shown that, but for some reasons unknown to me and a lot of people, it's still not become mainstream. Now, coming back to this whole question of what does it take for, you know, designers to actually become product designers? I think all designers, whether they are UI, UX guys or UI guys, if they really want to get into product design, uh, they can and they should try it at least once in their life. I think the framework is very simple whether you like it or not you need to pack the fact that you are very creative uh, you are you know you can remove abstractness and put a shape to it put a layer to it all of that is great but the minute you get into products the minute you get into platforms and services whether you like it or not two important things you need to be analytical the minute when you say when you ask people to be analytical a lot of creative people are like i'm not analytical mm-hmm. yeah so I think product is hard stuff, right? Product is really hard stuff because, uh, like I said in one of my previous uh, talks, also it may mean you know the existence or the demise of a company in question. So that is one thing, and they, they, there's an element of curiosity. There's an element of you know front-loading understanding, without which you can't solve for a problem, you know, or a domain without understanding it. Here is where there's a huge delta between traffic that comes from agencies like arts because. We get to work on a very, very, you know, diverse set of problem statements, right? In the morning, we may be talking to an oil and gas company. In the afternoon, we may be talking to a retailer. And, they, you know, in the evening, we may wrap up a call with a ph- big pharma company. Hmm. But whereas uh, when you go to the product world, it gets very verticalized. It gets very siloed, right? You may be working for a product, you know, platform or a suite for the last 10 years. So fatigue sets in. So a lot of guys at that point in time want to, you know, try the agency side of things. And a lot of agency guys actually want to, you know, jump into the product uh, side of things. And there's always this misnomer that product companies pay you better than agencies. (laughs) It might be partially true, but I think it it works in both uh, ways. So coming back to what does it take for any designer to be a product designer? The first and foremost thing is they need to think that product design is just a label. You might, you you will get to work on something that's already in existence, you know, which impacts the P&L of an organization, or you might be part of a startup that wants to build a product or a platform that's going to, you know, be a game changer. There are certain nuances that you need to understand. And yeah, metrics, outcomes, you need to signal uh, your design decisions. You know, the mad, the madman uh, stories and, you know, the agency Mm -hmm. stories uh, are also at fault, right? back in the day i'm not a creative guy i come to you you know you're the agency i, si- I sign a 5 million or a 50 million uh, annual contract and you are my creative guy you create all these fancy ads and you create all of this stuff and you basically pitch and sell it but i think some designers are still in living in that world i will do what i do and don't question me that won't uh, work uh, in today's day and age right so they have to be very very conducive to be collaborative uh, they need to be uh, very, very conducive to the fact that if they dream of working for a product company, they have to work with a disparate team that compresses of tech, uh, engineering, uh, marketing and sales and all of that. Because more often than not, when you work in agencies, you are actually completely sequestered from all of this. The brief comes to you. Uh, You know, the creative guys just sit and figure out what it is. And then, you know, you probably, you know, conceptualize, you wireframe it, you prototype it, you pitch it back and all of that. Whereas in a product company, you're a mishmash of too many people, too many moving parts. And that can also become a kind of a barrier to some designers, if not all designers. Speaking uh, for India, I think in India, there's always this taken for granted uh, feeling, if you will, that product companies pay you better and services companies and uh, studios to an extent it is true so a lot many people just blindly want to get into product companies you know without doing their homework
0: and that's really interesting and actually one thing that i remember from a an interview i did for this podcast many months ago now with another ux lead was how he almost felt that ux design product design has all become very subordinate to the product manager and not kind of really in charge of the design on its own. And I think that touches on what you just said as well. Like it's a collaboration. It's not just that someone's going to take away an idea and come up with a wonderful looking design and information architecture and everything like that and come back and present it to a team who are then going to build it. It's more of a, or it should be more of a collaboration so that everyone's on the same page throughout. And I've also seen other people, uh, maybe more from the engineering side and some of the more kind of high level thinkers about designing processes and stuff like this, saying that, of course, 100% you need to have your UX team, for example, let's just call it UX for now, the UX team in the same discussions as your developers, potentially with clients, as in the users of the software, to make sure that everything holds together, and that you're not just throwing the ball backwards and forwards over a wall. And it sounds like what you say that, that you would agree
1: with that. Oh, absolutely. I think I think that, that's what makes and breaks any product management function in any organization. You either are glued together, you gel well, and, and the ways of working actually enforces that. It's not that the product manager talks to the customer or the researchers and then comes back and gives his or her rendition to the design team. Design is not treated as a ancillary uh, function within the product management shop. These are the companies that strive and thrive. And uh, the rest of the companies, there's always this element of uh, feeling, uh, you know, the, this feeling of being left out. I'm just being treated as the design guy, the VD guy. And uh, yeah, I think that's where the forest fire is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but how easy is it then? Obviously, thinking of some of the experience that you've had in the various companies you've worked with in your career, I'm assuming that there have been times where you've taken on a project that someone you know, or a product that someone, started already that there's already some kind of design for or worse still that there was never a design for but it kind of just progressed anyway Hmm. how easy is it for you and for your team to for want of a better phrase unmake the porridge and actually make it so that you can get that design back on track I mean is there a point where you just look at it and go oh my you know like there's just no way you can get that and you basically have to start from scratch or is it generally quite easy to Apply good design principles to something and try and just nudge it back in the right direction.
1: Awesome! This branches out into two distinct tracks. I keep doing that. <laughs> I know, I know. i Yeah, commendable. You're doing a commendable, uh, you know, job at it. So, if you have established software or services or platform that's been in the market, okay, and you know it's very functional, you pay, you have paid paying customers, and you have a product backlog, and you're, uh, you know, so. In such situations, you cannot do a complete pivot, right? You have to make quick fixes. You need to get a, get you know some common sense fixes uh, to the existing platforms or products or whatever your company is offering. But in parallel, run a larger exercise to basically unveil the next big thing or the you know revised thing is what works. I will give an example. Uh, you know of many many examples. I'll give a live example uh, of of a multi multi billion dollar company. Of which I was part of. And on the other side, there are there are startups or there are like you know early stage companies uh, which has which has some traction, which has raised some capital, or basically they're trying to move to the next levels. There it's that much easier to basically pause and then completely pivot. Now the problem would be you will have you know shorter time cycles because you're a startup, you don't have a P and A, you know, you don't you don't have a pipeline, deal pipeline, you don't have a subscription base, you you don't have visibility of money coming in month on month. So people do it incrementally, but but for established companies, typically the F100, the F500, the FTSE 150 and all of that, there it becomes uh, a little harder simply because you're trying to change, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're trying to course correct uh, an oil tanker and not a speedboat. And no, mat- no matter what you what you want to do, it has its, it takes its own sweet time to basically, you know, change uh, position. So I can give a lot of war stories, but I'll give an example each from my own personal life on, on both the use cases. Ah, uh, one of them was uh, you know uh, a large enterprise's uh, enterprise wanting to change its design. Uh, yeah, I, I got hired by a company called MSC Software, so I'm not sure if uh, you're aware of it, and probably a significant amount of audience also may not be aware of it. So MSC uh, Software basically has its roots apparently in uh, I think it's it's in NASA, uh, 1930s, uh, and yeah, basically we we were a simulation company. We build uh, software and platforms that helps companies uh, to simulate and emulate reality before they become uh, products and our our elevator pitch was like fascinating right and what do you guys do so we were like you know we don't know what we did but we were the guys who put the first man on the moon Mm -hmm. and it is actually the fact Uh, you know i joined this company as uh, their global head of ui and ux by then the company was like about you know 20 20 25 30 years into the product suite that i'm talking about though you know though they were a 60 year old company by the time i joined them we, we had, uh, you know, multiple platforms that help computer-aided simulation, computer-aided engineering and simulation and all of that, right? And yeah, 30,000 of us, of which 25,000 were, you know, quants and PhDs in physics and mechanical engineering and whatnot. <laughs> and I I, I enter uh, the room and I'm basically a hardcore design guy. What helped was basically, you need to demonstrate value proposition to your stakeholders, the minute you 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 enter in such situation, uh, basically it's one one too many. There'll be a lot of guys, uh, advertently or inadvertently waiting waiting for your neck, not because they hate you or anything, but they feel the sense of discomfort that somebody is going to take their baby away. And and we are all we are all humans, you know, uh, <laughs> and you know blame, blame evolution. So the first thing is you need to break that misconception. You need to demonstrate quick values and what what has helped. For me, is basically rather than going and preaching to the choir, you basically step back and hear them out. There will be initial resistances. People who want don't people would try all kinds of bags, uh, you know, tricks in their bag, right? I'm very busy. I'm in a conference and all of that. That's the point in time where you make the C-suite responsible for that. Hey, I'm willing to talk to these guys and hear them out, but you need to facilitate that. I think yeah. As soon as I got hired, uh, yeah, I moved. Uh, you know, I had to go to LA. I sat with the who's who of the organization. I was part of the exec management as well. So that opened doorways, spoke to these guys, and we are hey, end of the day, I keep telling designers, hey, we are in the relationship business. Mm-hmm. Forget your Photoshop and tool and this and that. We are in the relationship business. I think for me it worked. We actually took one one sliver of a product that was selling like hot cakes. Basically, we we, we only we only had one you know competitor, uh, which was basically saw Systems, right? We went and said, let's take the sliver, let's run a pilot. Let's demonstrate value to ourselves, our sales folks, and our existing install base of like, you know, probably more than 100,000 customers, paying customers. And we ran a quick, uh, you know, pilot. We time boxed it. We ran it in 90 days. And then voila, uh, later, whatever you say becomes magic. And with great power comes great responsibility. That's when you need to be very careful. But yeah, I think that helped on the enterprise. In the startup, yes, I was again part of a, a fantastic startup uh, into the data visualization space, and uh, I actually ran five different product lines and, and a multi-million-dollar consulting business in parallel. So one of the things that we kept, you know, noticing is we had about thirty thousand paying customers, we had about five hundred thousand uh, developers you uh, know, strong developer community, and uh, yeah, we had uh, customers in you know about one hundred and ninety odd countries, including Greenland. So there was somebody who actually bought a license in Greenland as well. So, as, you know, classic story, they wanted us to consider the fact uh, that, you know, why don't you guys build something around SharePoint? So this is 2011, 2012, where SharePoint was like, you know, a big thing. It's still a big thing now. And uh, we were like, you know, should we pivot, shouldn't be pivot and all of that. But because it was more of a, you know, push from the client base, we actually stepped aside. We put a quick SWOT team in place we actually built a plugin that could actually bring real cool data visualization within the construct of SharePoint. And the rest is history. Actually, we made that the best data visualization component available for uh, SharePoint at that point in time and happy ending the company got acquired. So yes, yes. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I think think it is all about modulating uh, the ask versus the task and then, you know, breaking ice with the people because if you don't get into the relationship game, I may sound like a philosopher or I may sound like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm more into, uh, you know, do's and don'ts 101, but no, that's exactly how it unfolds. Otherwise, you will be at loggerheads about, you know, what do you know? You're just a design guy. I'm the, you know, nuclear uh, scientist. Mm-hmm. I built this algorithm which will emulate and simulate uh, probably a rocket. And yeah, I mean, in MSE, we were responsible for crash tests. We were responsible for satellites. We were responsible for consumer goods. And yeah I mean failure was not an option, so yeah
0: no, I mean that's really interesting, and I think the philosophy thing is actually really valid you know you need to think about these things on a higher level and you need to think about practices and, and principles so I'm definitely never going to criticize anyone for that but one thing that you also said is that you like to give form to the formless- mm-hmm. and I know you've worked in the past on some projects around authentication and security, so mm-hmm. obviously stuff that doesn't necessarily have a an amazing Design body of work around it necessarily. And in my day job, I work uh, very much with APIs and providing APIs to clients. And I know how hard it can be to get design thinking into that kind of product because, of course, it doesn't really have a, an interface or not a visual one anyway. Mm. But I'm starting to really believe and advocate for having proper design principles brought into things like this so that the products, even without an actual graphical interface, still have some level of journey built into them now is that something that you believe should be or or could be applied to basically anything or do you think that there are some things which design just really can't touch or can't make too much of an impact on
1: oh okay i completely spot on and really you know kudos for asking this question i i believe in the former There is there is nothing, uh, (laughs) I may be biased because I've I've made a living and a very good living at that one. I won't complain, having been a practicing designer for 25 years, but I'm parking the bias aside. I think, first of all, the definition of design to me is, if you are in the business of solving any business problem, societal problem, or any kind of problem, you are actually a designer. Design is just not the interface or the color or the layout and the composition and all of that, that we designers actually think is designed, right? Number one. Number two, yes like you said the world is moving to you know so many different things for example apis in, in question uh, can somebody look at an api probably the guy who writes code and then basically you know converts that into an api and maybe another developer who just gets the apis exposed and then the outcome of that api all the song and dance might you know translate into screens or uh, on a mobile phone or a desktop or a web platform and all of that right so yes this is a true blue example of an intangible that also can follow design principles, right? And the secret is out there. It's just that people can't see it just like how we are blended uh, to our own nose, right? Evolution. It is a process. And process reimagination and process redesign is of utmost importance to anything uh, that is probably in existence today. If you really step aside and look at it, there is a huge ecosystem of some magic happening and you could actually distill that into a process. Yes, some of them are still world secrets for, uh, you know, case in point, alchemy. People know that there are uh, (laughs) scrolls written about how to convert anything into gold. But yeah, maybe in due course of time, people will, uh, uh, you know, crack it. But for the more mundane things like software, right? (laughs) (laughs) There are ways and means uh, in which you should look at it as a problem that needs to be solved. And basically, you look at adjacencies, right? You don't stick to the rote of saying that, okay, because I'm using uh, React, because I'm using Node, Because I'm using probably Java, I have to do this. No, there is no more, uh, you know, the construct of I have to, I have to doesn't exist anymore. This is where, if you recall, I said designers have to be slightly analytical. This is where uh, that analytical bent of mind kicks in. You need to be curious about figuring out why certain things are working the way they're working. And uh, probably look at why nots. One of the significant things is we always focus on why. We ask a lot of questions. And then we don't come back and tell people why not? Why can't you consider an apple instead of a banana, if you will, right? I think a lot of interesting stuff actually is happening on that domain. But I think those designers who are actually sitting at the cusp of solving such problems are very far and few. Interestingly, because I am part of a super large uh, and a super successful company like Wipro, I get to uh, actually get a ringside view of certain things. And as I speak You know, we are big time into this whole construct called developer productivity. I don't know if you've heard about this or not, but I'm sure you would have. So this is a big thing, right? The whole world is becoming like a technology shop. Every company has to be, you know, a technology company and all of that. There is this huge kind of a quasi revolution that's happening where, hey, are our engineering teams, are our developers getting a great developer experience? Yes, we started with user experience. We moved to consumer experience and customer experience. And then there is whole thing about, employee experience and developer experience in tech firms uh, is basically a subset of employee experience right are we getting the right developers to do the right thing at whatever you know career stages that they are in and how do we empower them to be the best at what they do right very very profound uh, question like you know solving the world hunger problem but if you at the heart of it if you look at it what does it take for a developer to be productive First and foremost thing, right? What is productivity from a developer's lens? You actually have to define that. You will have to get people to align to that. Then you will have to institutionalize that. And then that becomes the norm. So as I speak, we are actually heavily invested in that. And we are doing a lot of uh, wonderful stuff. There, 90% of the times, there is no interface. And there is nothing. It is only, you know, there is a process that we want to try. And then we bring in tooling. We bring in communication. We bring in a lot of other things. To basically, you know, set that snowball in motion so that as it goes downward, it basically gains more mass and more volume. And then finally, it becomes uh, the thing, right? So you're right. Not everything that people see, touch, feel uh, should be construed as a designer's job. This is the next big thing for designers, uh, actually, because I keep telling people uh, to, you know, like a doomsday soothsayer, if you will, (laughs) that maybe in the next three years, four years, design, UI, UX design, as we know, may not even exist, right? We are going back to primitives. We are going back to gestures and we are going back to voice. And voice is going to be, you know, super, super important as we move forward, right? And then in parallel, you have AI and ML and all of that actually taking over. And there, there are already tools that actually can design a fantastic website in half the time that a designer probably could even, you know, think and whiteboard. We are not going to lose our jobs. I also tell that to people. Let the machine do what it is best. Bring in the you know speed and efficacies. You worry about the creativity and problem solving. is what I tell people. So yeah, let me pause. Uh, super excited with that question. So I went on and on, but <laughs> yes, a lot of things. The deceptiveness about design is not everything can be seen. But there's someone somewhere who sat through it, thought through it, and actually you know came up with the best algorithm, came up with the best process flow. That actually translates uh, a need or a goal or an objective into fulfillment. So that is the very big thing. And it's a blue sky. Not many designers are actually, you know, working on it or even know about it. The closest they come to is, uh, you know, they talk about systems thinking because they heard about systems thinking and they read the Meadows, you know, they picked the Meadows book. And then that's that. But nobody applies it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It does really feel, as you say, like it's almost like going to be a confluence of different disciplines all focusing on the product design or the UX design of the future, because like you say, it's going to take so many different inputs and you need to be able to synthesize and pull those. And again, I always just bring it back to this whole idea of there's a journey that you go on and what or how you interact with that journey. That's the design, right? And absolutely i guess it's just it'll it'll be really interesting to see where that goes as you say as we start to get more things like augmented reality and you know if they ever manage to get google glasses sorted out and stuff like that you know just all these different things and it still requires a real strong design mindset but design more from a designing how people are going to do stuff versus the specifics of nice visual design or whatever absolutely where do you think product design should report into do you think it should be into like a chief experience officer, a chief product officer? Does it matter at all? What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think uh, I'm fine if the middle, <laughs> uh, you know, the middle abbreviation is either a P or a X. <laughs> the only, you know, both, both of them bring their own advantages and disadvantages. I think uh, there are a lot of companies that are actually run by designers, right? Case in point, Airbnb. You you won't get a better uh, example than that, right? I mean, designers basically became what they have become, but very controversial question, but I'll still give my two cents or you know two cents or two pennies on this. The chief product officer or the chief of experience officer interoperably can actually own, run, and be responsible for all the product management functions of any organization, subject to the fact that they are thoroughly grounded in both the domains. Having said that. You don't expect uh, this person to actually be a practicing designer at some point in time or you know a full blown product manager. I'm sure you can find such people uh, you know a few people on the planet given that we are like seven and a half billion in counting. but it's very rare, right? But the thing is not about uh, CPO versus CXO, right. The thing is about the p and the X actually realizing that hey, we are both you know two sides of the same coin. This is what I keep telling over and over again fuse the analytic you know analytic bent of mind with the creative bent of mind and all of that so to answer maybe 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 a designer uh, you know a designer who's always been a you know a great designer who has been who has been exposed uh, to the ways and means of how product management works and what does it take what does it take and all of that may actually climb up the ladder and actually become a, a cpo for all you know right I, in my life, I never had the C-suite attributed to me during my product management days, but I was way up the VP and the EVP and the SVP layers, right? I didn't even know what product management was. I was just pushed into uh, this department by my CEO. He basically said, I think this is what you need to do. And I still remember the only thing I had asked him. And that was my naiveness when I was all of 24, 25. Uh, Basically, this was in Silicon Valley. So he says, hey, I'm, I'm planning to move you to product management. It'll be a great thing for you. And guess what my response was? Okay. I don't know whatever it means, but uh, what kind of a hike am I giving? What, what is my increment? <laughs> and, and yeah, he did, he did promise me some number and he kept his side of the bargain, to be honest. And uh, the rest was history. I got in, I got fascinated with how you know, intersection of marketing and uh, sales and engineering and all of that stuff. Right. So I think CPO or CXO as a label is fine. Who needs to own is somebody who understands both. But in today, as we speak, I can guarantee 90% of chief product officers for all the all the swan songs uh, you know that they talk about uh, you know design is very close to my heart I, I know the value of design and all that my personal experience uh, it is rote i'm not telling all the cpos disclaimer i don't want all the cpos to chase me <laughs> but, but the ground reality is they have different goals and objectives on a daily basis and some of them genuinely are curious about design most of them actually call it out probably because that is part of their organization anyways. On the flip side to it, chief experience officers basically take X very literally, right? They're very passionate about it. I want to, I want to change the organization experience. I want to change culture, and I keep telling people you can't change culture. You can only influence a change in culture, right? So who needs to own it? I am okay if still, you know, I'm still okay if the CPOs office is CPOs because it's a very, uh, you know, grounded construct. But the chief product officer needs to take sides. On both sides, right? You cannot think about uh, you know an MBA plus you know quant plus qual plus you know a couple of releases under the belt should basically come and dictate terms uh, to the designers. At the same time, designers should not be rebellious and think that okay, no matter what you do, what people are going to look look at, what they're going to touch and feel and experience is mine. I'm not gonna deliver, right? So that becomes a bloodbath. <laughs> it's whoever, yeah, whoever needs to get into the you know surgical table needs to understand. Uh, the entire physiology that would be my analogy i mean I, I shouldn't say that i'm probably a thoracic surgeon and uh and that's that maybe maybe you know someone else can come and take care of something else no that doesn't work but that that will take at least a couple of generations of uh, chief product officers or chief experience officers to basically come to you know a pact a truce but those days are on the horizon it's not going to take 50 60 years for sure
0: So, where can people catch up with you after this if they like what they've heard and want to talk a bit more about product design or any of the other stuff that you've mentioned today?
1: LinkedIn. So, yeah, I'm I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the only place that I check in at least once a day, and uh, you know, I would definitely recommend people to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, Yeah, my handle is very simple. Go to LinkedIn and just uh, you know search for UX first. That's U for Umbrella, X for Xerox, F I R S T, and you'll find me.
0: I will link it in, so to speak, into the show notes. And obviously, we're looking forward to your first TikTok as well. So,
1: <laughs>
0: Awesome. <laughs> well, that's been a really fantastic chat. Really interesting to talk about some of your experience and opinions about the wonderful world of design. Hopefully, we can stay in touch and catch up on that more in the future. But as for now, thanks for taking the time.
1: Hey, thanks, uh, Jason. Thanks for having me here. And yes, we would, we, would, we would be in touch and we'll definitely have many, many banters about product and design and all of the things, I'm sure.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode interesting and insightful. If you did again, I can only encourage you to share with your friends, sign up on the website, onenightinproduct.com, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and check out some of my other inspiring conversations with passionate product people. I'll be back soon, but as for now, thanks and good night.